This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Honestly, I think we should just trust our president in every decision that he makes, and we should just support that, you know? And, um be faithful in what happens. Do you trust this president? Yes, I do. So teach me Welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes and those of our other shows at theplaylist.net or on your podcatcher of choice. You just search for the Playlist Podcast Network. You find them all there. All right, so house cleaning's out of the way, Joe. Um, what are we doing today? Are we linking, we're linking pop stardom with, uh, with tragedy? Is that, is that what's going on today? A little bit. I think we're gonna we're gonna dive into the uh, the what it, what the late '90s into the 2000s felt like in terms of just a period of uh, strange dread and apprehension. And um, I asked, we're primarily discussing as a centerpiece uh, Brady. Um, I believe his last name is pronounced like Sorbet. Uh, so it's Corbet. <laughs> Kidding. Uh, Brady Corbett's new film, his second film. Uh, Vox Lux starring Natalie Portman mm. and uh, a host of other people who we'll talk about. But um, like after you and I had both seen it, there was like, I asked you, I was like, what is another film that seems to kind of like distill that sense of that weird kind of roaming paranoia and sense of dread and apprehension that the late nineties had that carried over into the early two thousands and was crystallized like with, you know, the period of, after September 11th, yeah. like what's something that like distills that and like you after a couple of suggestions landed on uh, Spike Lee's the 25th hour, which I think is like kind of the, the perfect one to, yeah. to discuss as an addendum to this because uh, it, it, it uses similarly September 11th um, to bookend the story it's telling as this sort of framework of devastation and like it doesn't deal with it directly in terms of like it as a plot point it just sort of reinforces the tone and atmosphere of the film the way shootings seem to kind of create the tone and atmosphere that vox lux plays out in so um with that sort of laid out in front of us we can start with uh with vox lux Mm -hmm. and um you know, it's his first film, Childhood of a Leader. We discussed. You had seen it, mm-hmm. um, and and went in, in depth about it. And it's a it itself, Childhood of a Leader, is a movie that Brady Corbet. Just kidding. Uh, Brady Corbett has uh, described as like a documentation of what like the sort of main events of the early 20th century, whereas Vox Lux is the sort of defining events and moments of the early 21st century mm-hmm. and there i don't know there was like there was a strange energy in the late 90s which is when vox lux starts mm-hmm. i think it's in like 1999 is when it takes place mm-hmm. it were that's the entry point that we start at with vox lux and like there was just a, a weird creeping kind of almost like superstitious dread of the millennium and then that dread was sort of materialized with, you know, Y2K and the millennium bug. But there was just like a roaming kind of unease. Yeah, and like yeah. that was the, you could you could find that in the movies kind of coming out, rolling out over the course of 1999 with American Pie. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but with like The Matrix and Fight Club and stuff like that. And then like once 2000 came and like nothing really happened. 
um, the the dread still was there, and then it found a real true <clears throat> lightning rod with like the devastation and tragedy of September 11th. And um, that is covered in the opening of, of Vox Lux, or at least in the first section of it, where we meet a character going to high school when a mass shooting happens, which 1999 was also when the Columbine um, shooting happened. We meet Celeste, who is like a victim of the shooting, who survives and winds up singing a song at a vigil for the victims of the shooting that ends up like catching the, the nation's heart and attention and sort of like launches her into a, 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 the beginning stages of a stardom. And then, so the first half of it is covering her as a young person before she's played by Natalie Portman eventually. Um, and just walking through, through this like era as she's like kind of coming into her own as like, an artist, a pop artist in this, like what's to become an icon eventually. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was like, it was really interesting going to see this movie when it played at AFI fest. Cause it was literally days after uh, a shooting that happened very close to us in Los Angeles. And unfortunately mass shootings have become so constant that like, to release a movie that's dealing with it and depicting it, it's going to fall close enough to a tragedy that's just happened because they've become all too common and all too horrifically inescapable. So this movie um, really, it, it deals with the effects of what, what happens to the world and when it's sort of like bookended and reinforced by constant trauma and trying to find our identity and like, but it doesn't necessarily use the, 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 the plot isn't necessarily driven by these things. They're right. just right. reinforcing the tone and the atmosphere of them. And um, yeah, it's just like, it, it's an interesting investigation into, you know, like pop celebrity, but also in this era that's like, uh, that's sort of rife with all of this unease and this paranoia and this dread and this sense of like looming, uh, just mayhem, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, and trying to find definition and a sense of self and purpose when these things are, are so constant to the point of becoming like blase at a certain point in the movie, when it eventually does shift to the narrative where the character of Celeste is older and being played by Natalie Portman. So, I don't know, like if 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 you want to dig into like one, uh, just how why this kind of investigation, this type of film, uh, isn't really clicking and connecting with people because right, you and right. I talked off mic about how like there's somewhat of a backlash to this movie and like the its approach to these subjects. I feel like this movie. Um has become the bad batch of 2018. <laughs> like, I guess that can work on many levels, but for those who probably don't remember, there was this really cool movie that came out last year by Anna Lily Amir Poor called The Bad Batch. And I remember us seeing it and it, it got sort of a quiet release in the summer, put out by the same company, by the way, Neon, that put out Vox Lux. Mm -hmm. So they certainly are on to interesting things, I, uh, I think we would say. But, um, I was surprised because we were pretty enthusiastic about that movie and it, it's got flaws or, but there was like a boldness to it. There was, it had ideas on its mind and it had a, a vision and it felt like a, I, I thought it was a cool movie. I really went for it. And then to see the, like um, the small amount of people that actually even went and saw it, bad batch, like just generally seemed to hate the movie. It seemed. And I heard a lot of the same things that I'm kind of hearing from uh, critics I follow on Twitter or colleagues, you know, just there's there's a lot of voices out there, and I feel like a lot of them are pretty cacophonous on this movie right now. And and a lot of what I'm hearing is, I don't know how anybody could like this movie, or that's certainly something I came across a little bit last night. Yeah, and uh, the movie's only had a limited release uh, just last week. Uh, it opened mm -hmm. in I think L.A., New York. That was it. Uh, going wider uh, this Friday as we record, but. 
Yeah, I'm surprised by... I guess I'm surprised and not surprised in some ways. Like, it is a movie that I think, for one, what I appreciate on a very surface level of Vox Lux is that it is a bold film. Like, it, and it's something you can, uh, that must just be an element of Brady Corbett, uh, Brady Corbett's uh, directorial style, because we didn't love Childhood of a Leader, but that movie was so worth digging into and talking about. And I, was, I remain fascinated by it because it just takes, it makes, Bre- Corbett makes a really bold decisions as a director. He will recast an actor in a role. He does this in both movies uh, where he recast an actor to play somebody else later on in a movie. And um, it can throw off an audience or he, he um, in the case of Vox Lux, like it is a movie that isn't you, you, you kind of got to this is like, it's not trying to be, it's not that it's, it's not a subtle movie, but it's not trying to lay out its themes and its point of view. It's just sort of like equating things in a really interesting way. So the rise of a pop star, a sort of 21st century portrait as this movie is sort of uh, described Mm -hmm. as like, we're following this pop star and her arc just happens to be linked and it's inescapable from all these tragedies because things like nine 11, you know, these things occur in the narrative of the movie as she's rising as a pop star. And I just, without even being able to fully articulate what I found so captivating about it, I just think this movie's onto something and I can't, part of what I love about it is beyond the boldness of its approach is that I can't articulate exactly what is so, what's got me about it. I think it's onto something and sometimes great movies can't be, I can't put words to them all the time. So I'm kind of in this weird zone right now where I'm like, wow, a lot of people don't like this movie, but I think it's really on to something. So, um, yeah, I'm just sort of floundering right now, like wondering like, ah, I wish, I wish more people like, are there more people that got that feeling from it too? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. There's, I don't know, like with how divisive culture has gotten and how like, no matter what things are being used to like reinforce your, whatever your ideological positioning. So like, I honestly, like I looked at a, a a video, a kitten video (laughs) and unfortunately clicked on uh, the comment section. And it was like, people used it as a way to like, that cat is like, is basically like any liberal or like, no, actually that cat is like a Republican with, Mm. I was like, wow. Like if this isn't bots that are programmed to just bicker like endlessly (laughs) on the internet and these are actual genuine people, like you've taken the last refuge of like pleasure being cat videos on the internet and politicize them. So it's just like, (laughs) everything is ruined, but like, with a movie being just ponderous and reflective the way Vox Lux seems to be, mm-hmm. um, I think people need for it to be clear about its ideological positioning so it can be ammo in this sort of continuing escalating cultural war. And if it's not doing that, then I think people get frustrated and dismissive of it. That might not be why everybody is frustrated with this film, right. but it certainly seems to be like, I don't know, like, I don't have, like you were saying, a critic had said, like, I don't have time for this. Like, so basically, that was the the summary of their point. And it was yeah. just like, huh, that's interesting. Like, well, what do you have time for? And like, with this film, it's just like, it's not taking a position in terms of like what these events mean. And like, I'll say that in the, in the immediate shell-shocked aftermath of a shooting that literally just happened right near us in Los Angeles, like, it was, it did feel strangely, like, voluntarily traumatic to be walking through these kind of -of matter-of-fact depictions of violence that's become all too common. And it was just like, fuck, what am am I watching? Like, this feels, this, this feels horrible in a way that like maybe we're not ready for and like brady introduced the movie and he was like decent enough to be like if you can't handle this right now please like excuse yourself and like if you need to see it later like we completely understand and like this was the los angeles premiere of the movie and so like you know he there there is a a sense of sensitivity to the depiction like even if it is kind of cold and matter of fact that it's just like you know it's it's not unlike 
how Gus Van Zant depicted the matter of factness of, you know, similar violence and elephant. Yeah. And, um, but I think like, because it's become this nightmare that we can't wake up from this type of violence, this type of like mayhem, um, people want, they want a way out of it. And so like, if they can find a, a an ideology to, kind of cling to as like a, a raft to get through this existential dread that seems to be spread out in every direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's what they want and they don't know what, what good it does to sort of like fester in an, in an like wound that won't close, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's interesting that like, you know, I, I think that this, that's what the compulsive energy of this movie is, is not, it's a character study mm-hmm. amidst an atmosphere of constant trauma, which is what we're in. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the type of like, it's not a clearly defined type of film. It's not strictly yes. a drama, a melodrama. It's certainly funny in parts. It's not a comedy though, but like, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have no real sense of the the clearly defined boundaries of a genre also is an unease that people just I don't think want to willfully visit at this point you right, know right there's like the content of the movie which is dealing with a lot of traumatic stuff it's 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 I think it is handled pretty artfully you know like like oh, Elef- yeah. elephant does come to mind you know with the the sort of school shooting aspect of the beginning of the movie and there's another mass shooting thing that opens up the sort of second half of the film it's done in a way that's very artful and it's i i just i was constantly fascinated by the way that like the movie links these things that are happening every day and sort of um maybe another reason that it repels people so much is that we are living this and just reading news every morning you know if is like yeah. is akin to this where it's like a pop star did something crazy but oh a mass shooting happened here and then a right. you know so the i think that stuff is clearly on corvette's mind and i just think like uh, for one, I commend him for being bold enough to go there, but also, yeah, this is a movie that is not easily definable. It has a structure that is almost unique, not unique because it's kind of akin to uh, like full metal jacket. You know, it's in a lot of ways. I think this movie has, uh, again, I'm, I'm just going there. It's got a Kubrick vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a detached narrator played by Willem Dafoe, you know, sort of brings you through the portrait being told of Celeste. And I loved these stylistic choices like that. Um, I loved the 166 aspect ratio, the old school kind of like frame of the movie. Um, there's a lot to appreciate it uh, uh, on that level. But also, yeah, like this movie is just bold and does things atypical to to most movies. Um, and I tend to want that from movies more often. Uh, and I think like... Uh, that's maybe what surprises me when I'm like, Oh, maybe most people don't want that. And it's like, okay, I need to like nothing wrong with realizing that there's a difference between what you might like and what the audience is going for. But, uh, I am a little surprised by, again, by just like the, the, some of the vitriol I've heard for the movie. Um, you know, some of which is even leaning into like, uh, there, there's some writers from the playlist that, that have, uh, vocalized their hatred for Natalie Portman's performance in this movie, which, uh, of all things, seems to be getting the most um, buzz or whatever you want to call it. I think that's the reason Neon put this movie in a difficult release in December at the end of the year, you know, like um, is because her performance has a chance to be nominated, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm hearing some people that think she's terrible in the movie. And I find that interesting because the movie and it just goes back again to the boldness of the approach. Like Natalie Portman is going very big in this movie and what she's doing. And it feels appropriate for the kind of film, but uh, it's there. Everybody's kind of like going out on a limb in this movie. And like, they're, they're like risking something. It feels like they're, 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 they're making it so they could be made fun of. They look, they could look ridiculous, but I, I really appreciated just the balancing act of that. And then by and large, a lot of it works for me. And I'm, I feel like I've been under the spell of this movie for like a month and a half. I got to see it kind of early, uh, luckily. And I've just been like, 
I, I, I want to go back. A second viewing will be really telling for me with this film. Um, but I, I have a feeling I'm going to like appreciate it more and that there'll be more to take away from it because there's a lot swirled around in this movie. It's just not made obvious for you what to take away from it. Yeah, I think that lack of obviousness is uh, can be like frustrating to people. And like, and I, I think that there's probably you know, if, if you can hear someone's counter argument as you're making a point, like their <laughs> counter argument might be like, no, I got it. I got what it was doing. I just hate it. Um, and like, I think that's like, that's fair because like ultimately the, to me, there, there was a sense of like when the movie concludes, um, there like it, I was with it the entire way that there is like a sort of weird urgent pulse to the movie that I was like with and like there there's like a lot of great performances one of which is Jude Law is like incredible yes. in this movie. like yes. I think one of the best supporting roles this year um he plays Celeste's manager and so like through through both sections of the film he's this kind of like haggard tired put upon guy who like you know he used to be the bubbly go-to you know uh personification of optimism at one point you know jude law oh so he's so effervescent but like now he's (laughs) sour as fuck and i can't wait to see more of that jude law but um yeah he's great but yeah i think that like the the pulse of the movie um is like it's so compelling throughout and it's just like it's these uh, oftentimes these long takes these long extended scenes um you know with like a great ensemble i said jude law but there's also um uh what's what's my man's name from james white uh christopher abbott yep 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 he pops in there yeah i may have rushed the pronunciation of that i didn't say christopher rabbit i said (laughs) christopher abbott um He's great, has a small role, and... Um, We've got uh, Stacey Martin, who was actually pretty good in, in the first part of Nymphomaniac. Uh, she, she's, uh, in, she's the sister to Celeste in this movie. Um, I liked her. The, the younger version of Celeste is played by Raffi Cassidy, who, she, if you remember, she was the daughter in Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, right. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah, those Killing of a Sacred Deer kids have been popping up in movies this year. The uh, the sun popped up in mid '90s as well. Um, okay. So they're they're having a little post uh, traumatic career from that movie. That's good. Um, yeah. So so and with I agree. Like I think the cast is really strong. Like I, I there's so much to appreciate in that end. But I've um, you know I don't want to dwell too much on what other people are saying or the negativity. But I've heard a lot of negativity around. Um, what I think are very purposeful directorial choices or, you know, creative choices made by the people making this movie. I don't think they're mistakes, but it seems to be that a lot of people are just taking it as just dumb moves, but that's what I find so fascinating. So one would be Rafi Cassidy plays the young Celeste in this movie. And it's a movie of two halves and very much like uh, Corbett's first film, childhood of a leader. There is a time jump that happens Uh, In the case of Vox Lux, it happens halfway through, and then we jump about 15, 20 years ahead, and Natalie Portman is the older version of Celeste, and she's been famous for a long time at that point. Mm -hmm. And we can, I like how he uses time in that way in his films, because like we can fill in the blanks enough to be able to figure out how she got to this point, and it allows for like other areas to explore in a story instead of like, I feel like the most common trajectory of a movie about a pop star, not that there are a lot of them, but most movies uh, about a pop star, I think would, would be about that section that he, that he skips over in the movie. So I think that, that again is, is another one of those bold choices that I really went for that felt unique. But uh, Corbett has this thing where, okay, so Celeste is, when she's Natalie Portman in the second half of the movie, she has a daughter and her daughter is played by Raffi Cassidy. And the movie does not, it's, it's confusing at first. And I think a lot of the audience will be confused by that troubled by it. It was the first thing asked by uh, uh, my boss after I had watched it. He's like, what did you think of that? Like, that seems to be the thing that people get hung up on. And then there are these um, other choices. Like Natalie Portman has a much stronger sort of Staten Island accent in her half than, the younger version of her did. 
Right. Po- point being, and people like Jude Law and Stacey Martin, they don't seem to age in the movie. They they are still played. They play themselves in both halves of the movies. All these are just, I think, sort of like working on a way that like, well, a lot of people do look like I found practical reasons for it to work. Like the daughter often sons and daughters look very much like their parents. So that wasn't a stretch for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, reading an interview with Corbett, it, it sort of locked it in for me. It was like his whole idea. Like he had this big scene that he wanted of where Celeste is talking to a younger version of herself. But I think he found a really creative way to make that work in a logical way. But also it has this sort of metaphorical value to it where she's giving her younger self really cynical, awful advice because the point she's in as a star at this is like, it's, 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 it's where you can start making connections to uh, grander themes like us, you know, America as a country, like we, where she's become sort of cynical and her soul has sort of rotted away. She was such a, like a innocent, beautiful thing in the first half of the movie. And mm-hmm. there was such an earnestness to it. That's all gone. And now she has this vulgarity to her. And I liked that, like Portman leaned into all that and she ups her accent and, it's, it's as if, like, when you get older, like, some people just double down on things like that. Like, maybe she's more proud of where she comes from, and she wants to be more vulgar in that way. I don't know. I was able to, like, fill in the holes, and I just appreciated that stuff. But I'm finding that uh, it seems people are just either confused or think it's, like, just poor filmmaking, all of which I find fascinating. Like, I love divisive conversations or conversations about divisive movies. It's all fun and, and fascinating, but... um. I am surprised uh, to to see like like that was the stuff that I appreciated with. So uh, yeah, I just feel like I'm on the other side of things with this one. Yeah, I think that um, there's also a potentiality, not a word, um, that uh, <laughs> Celeste, you know, as being played by Natalie Portman, she's been famous for so long that she exists in a bubble where her sense of self has been like invaded and eroded for so long that she she is essentially a composite of things that like feel forced and artificial like an accent you know where like she's been artificial for so long because she's had to put this persona forward for so long that she probably has to like just put together a personality like behind all that because her sense of self when she drops her public persona is and is kind of like a raw nerve at the point that we're like meeting her at in the second half of the movie. And like, I don't know, there's just, I I think my personal flaw, which I was getting at earlier, like uh, not my personal, like my flaw (laughs) is that I lack a drive. No, but like my personal problem with the flaw of the film is that like it clips along at such, such an urgent pace throughout the movie and then i think that like its structure is so strange that by the time it gets to the conclusion its sense of like uh investigation and its sort of ponderous qualities doesn't really land on any note and that doesn't need to be clear about what the thesis of the movie is but it just sort of kind of like wanders off it ends on like like celeste's performance at the end of the film and like you and i have talked uh, off mic via text about like what you think that means. And like, that's interesting enough, but I just think like to have a sense of conclusiveness that doesn't need to be like, like I said, like a thesis statement or an ideological sort of like declaration, but like there, there's a punch to the movie that when the movie kind of ends, it doesn't really have that same punch and yeah. it doesn't really conclude very strongly to me. And like there was a similar, like you mentioned, you know, Kubrick and and stuff like that, you know, with Full Metal Jacket. But I th- I thought that there was like a sense of uh, cold clinical detachment that reminded me of my frustrations with Zero Dark Thirty, okay, the yeah. movie, and how like how it was so uh, so kind of committed to the matter of factness of the depiction of what was happening. There wasn't like, I almost wanted a melodrama aspect of some of it. So I could feel like a connectedness with the narrative. Cause it was just like, Oh, this just feels like a series of horrible things that like I'm watching, you know, socially inept person tell me about like, Oh, shouldn't I feel anything about this? Like, I don't know. It's just, it's all happening and it's, and it, and it's terrible. It's terrible. Maybe like, (laughs) Is it? I don't know. So like that 
that if I have a gripe is that it just sort of like wanders off in the last section. And yeah. I think that like there's enough uh strong uh there there are so many strong moments throughout the course of it, and there's such a sense of like atmosphere and gloom and just texture to the whole experience that just to be like, I didn't like the ending is not enough to sort of capsize the rest of the experience. Right. Right. And I think the gripes about inconsistencies where it was just like, were you like being confused about re I didn't know that the girl who played Celeste in the first half of the movie is going to play her daughter. I put it together though. I was like, <laughs> Oh, like I see what's happened. I see what they did. Yeah, like, yeah. Why do people have to have their hand held so fucking like mm. thoroughly anymore? That it's just like it's not confusing if you're paying attention. I remember a similar issue for some people with There Will Be Blood is that Paul Dano ended up playing, you know, the two brothers in that and it, it just led to confusion and then it yeah. got asked a lot at the time because that movie was so big that like well, if you're paying attention. Well, I wasn't. Well, OK, fault <laughs> is that <laughs> exactly it's it is too bad. And I, I think your points about the ending are totally fair. I mean, we have discussed it off mic. I think it's getting to something that that feels sort of um, potentially more disturbing or it just sort of. Um, I think it's getting at something, but I do think that it, it does like tonally the sort of feeling you get from it. It feels like a whimper. It's like, Oh, I the credits are on. It's over. I didn't feel like that was going to be the ending, even right. though it's building up to this big moment. Her big performance is the sort of big climactic thing. It like makes sense on some levels, but yeah, as you're riding the sort of the forward momentum of the movie, it feels a little off. And really, I just, I, I chalk that up to um, it, it's another connection I want to make with something like Annalilla uh, Amir Poor's movie, The Bad Batch of like, these are not perfect movies by any means. They're, they're sort of like, they're bold. They, 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 they might be a little bit like flabby in some parts. Like I would get, I understand if people have criticisms about them, but like, that's kind of the stuff I appreciate is like, these are filmmakers that are trying to, that are really doing something trying to make something bold, unique that mm -hmm. stands out, especially compared in American cinema, like even American independent cinema, like these are choices that don't get made typically in narrative films here. And I, I appreciate that on a, on one level, but also like, I, I want more of that. Like that's, that's something to appreciate. Like neon putting this movie out in December is, I, I, and I think it might hurt them. This movie's probably going to just do. Okay. We'll see. I'm, I mean, I'm pulling for it. But uh, because of how divisive it already seems to be uh, in its limited release, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it'll do. But uh, I am I I appreciate the the so much about the filmmaking that's bold, but also the the actual like putting this kind of movie out there at this time. I feel like this is the kind of movie we normally get in the spring, you know, or or like early 2019 we would normally get. But they they position this in a tough uh, window in the release calendar for, for movies. And, um, I appreciate that, you know, uh, but while also just like being pretty, you know, taken by the, the film itself. And, uh, again, can't, can't wait to really see it. I, I would say I was so constantly reminded of this movie, uh, as I was watching of, uh, don't let I me, mean, if people are paying half attention, they're going to be confused. They're like, what do you mean? He hasn't seen it. Like, no, he means see it again. See like, it that's, again. That, that's what he's saying. Good call. Thank you for finishing my thoughts. I can't always do it. Uh, what the last one I'm, that's kind of swirling in my brain is there, there's a scene in, uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit nine 11 where, uh, Britney Spears is being interviewed by someone and, uh, she's asked about president Bush. I don't know if you remember this moment, but it's always mm. stuck in my brain. And I thought of it constantly with Fox Lux and she just says a very simple answer. And she says, I just think we should trust our president and have faith in whatever decisions he has. And I do think like, that scene might've just really affected Brady Corbett when he saw it, or I, you know, I'm just, I'm making assumptions or connections based on what I saw in the film, but it's like, he took that idea of this pop star. Like, why is a pop star being asked questions about politicians? Like that, these, these things get wrapped up in the same newsfeed constantly that that's the only reason it happens, but it's absurd that Britney Spears is being asked, uh, and that we're listening to her thoughts about, uh, you know, about president Bush at the time. So, uh, Vox Lux is kind of like, well, what if you follow Britney Spears trajectory in the last 15 years and you take her, you know, you take that character to another place. Like I, I, I really appreciated that like lift off from a, from something that really like affected me from a previous documentary or uh, 
Dave Chappelle when he talks about September 11th and how MTV News said that they had Ja Rule on the yes. phone. Let's hear what Ja has to say. Who's the fuck what Ja Rule has to say? I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen. Don't pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this, nigga? This is ridiculous. I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You think when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Because somebody, please, find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? <laughs> that is what exactly i love that that's the absurdity that corbett's really like uh examining in this movie without judging it without without like being like these people are idiots or pop music is dumb because i think he has an affection for all of it but he also is able to point out the the things that contradict the absurdity of it all there's also something interesting about how um like it, there seems to be a handful of movies that are investigating like uh, just pop iconography in a way that's having to create like actual fictional pop stars, which it seems like to to make a credible uh, depiction of a pop star, you have to then achieve what a pop star would do in terms of like catchy music that's like mm-hmm. credible that people would like it. So, you know, with the new iteration of like a star is born. They have to have like a, a, you know, a new series of compelling songs that would like work on the public, which it has, I guess, because the, that's one of the big songs from it is actually popular in the top 40. And with um, Vox Lux, Sia, who is like, you know, an, an artist is responsible for all of the, the fictional music that Celeste comes up with. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting that like that, that's not, really an easy thing to pull off that like you're depicting uh, a pop stars, uh, you know, a ascent into popularity and it has to pull off like making credible music that would connect with an audience in real life as it is. Cause it has to sell itself in the fictional, you know, yeah, so, like right. that's like, that's not easy. And another movie is Alex Ross Perry's new film, her smell, which does the same thing with sort of like nineties uh, girl rock. And it's just like, Oh, this sounds exactly like the stuff that was being produced at the time. And it's sort of like, it is very convincingly sells it. Yeah. It's just like that. That's something that is happening more and more. And it's just like an interesting investigation to how cultures peaked. And it's a, uh, so it's all in retrospect now. It, exactly exactly it's it is really challenging i think there are movies that are often about like that'll be about or shows about like stand-up comedy or like sketch shows and often like you'll see the comedy in the show and it doesn't make you laugh mm-hmm. it, it's like it's the same problem where it's like well that has to actually be like believably funny and good you can't just tell us that this character's funny you gotta yeah. you gotta People show like it him really because i don't see why <laughs> Exactly. And I, I think that's something that um, is like one of the most impressive elements of Vox Lux that I bet even a lot of the detractors will probably appreciate is the music seems legit. Like the song that she becomes famous for that her and her sister write after, you know, the school shooting she goes through is like a legit great like little pop song. It's like this beautiful little ballad, you know, and uh, mm. yeah, I think that is really hard to pull off and uh, is to be commended most definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's opening wide this Friday, correct? And yeah, uh, I guess wide-ish. It'll be interesting to see how many screens they go to. It had a pretty good limited release, uh, pretty good. But uh, well, it seems like we'll... Natalie Portman, at least in L.A., has been really like really going to bat for this movie, like showing up to the screenings for Q and A's cool. with Brady. And uh, yeah, I think it's really just sort of like believes in this project the way like, you know, the filmmaker believed in her. So tell me this. Did did Brady Corbett talk at the screening you went to uh, after? Did he do like a Q&A? Yeah, he did do a Q&A. 
how does he seem as a director? Because, you know, this is an actor that we've seen in lots of stuff, like, uh, you know, like the Funny Games remake and uh, always been a pretty interesting actor. But to see him transition into the director uh, role, um, I think he's got a lot more exciting things ahead. I think he's going to make something truly like undeniably great someday. That's the sort of what I see in his work so far. But does he does he handle himself well in the q and I know you said he gave a really nice... Uh, sort of sympathetic intro, but um, does he seem like he like knows what he's talking about when he's when he's answering the questions? Yeah, I think that he's he's very soft spoken and very like unassuming, and maybe that's more to do with like just the the bashfulness of some actors. But like he does have a vision that he seems to be able to communicate pretty clearly, and um, just in terms of like the the step forward in ter- like this is you know, whatever flaws you identify about this movie, it's kind of epic filmmaking, you know, in terms of like its scope of what it's depicting and the, the, the tone and atmosphere that it's, it's aiming for. And so like, just with like, and his first movie is no small feat either. So like, it, it seems like if he's still allowed opportunities to escalate in terms of scale, I think he does have like big things you know, lined up for him. Yeah. And that's exciting considering like, this is a guy that's worked with a lot of European auteurs. He's, he pops up in force majeure as well. Like he's worked with a lot of interesting auteurs out there. So he's probably been getting access to some of the greats to learn from. And and I think that shows in his approach, which is just not typical of any kind of American filmmaking, be it independent or, you know, large scale Hollywood. So yeah, yeah I, I hope doors are open to him for sure. Yeah. So, um, do you want to, you want to pivot to our, our hold up, which we've Let's do mentioned it, man. earlier. Let's do it. Let's talk about spike. Fuck you too. Fuck me. Fuck you. Fuck you and this whole city and everyone in it. Fuck the Wall Street brokers, self-styled masters of the universe, Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, wannabe motherfuckers figuring out new ways to rob hardworking people blind. Send those Enron assholes to jail for fucking life. You think Bush and Cheney didn't know about that shit? Give me a fucking break. Um, so... This was your pick, as I said earlier in the episode, 25th hour from 2002. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I sort of described how the movie uses September 11th as uh, the the sort of like framework of the the melodrama that plays out inside of it, you know, which is about a our protagonist played by Ed Norton, who is kind of, you know, like he's, he's a good mascot for the millennium tension, um, you know, with fight club, fight club, uh, primal fear, maybe a little bit, um, keeping the faith, just kidding. Um, (laughs) and then into the 25th hour. Um, so he plays Monty, uh, someone who is trying to get like the, some some closure to his life before he serves a prison sentence for drug dealing and it's about him getting his his friends together for like kind of one last night before he's put away and um yeah uh do you want to you want to get into your first experience with watching this movie and why you picked it as a hold up absolutely um uh, well, for Hold Up, it's one of those interesting choices because uh, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I liked this movie and it seemed like most of the audience did when it came out. Uh, mm. Like it, it wasn't a huge hit, but uh, I think this was a movie that a lot of people, critics to like seem to rally around, but it's also um, had a really fascinating post-release life. I think it's only been elevated in its uh and how critics feel about it people that think and write and talk about movies a lot for a living this movie has remained in the conversation in a way that most movies don't uh uh so that's that's really interesting but at the time i saw it uh on dvd in college uh and um i was sort of um like waffling on spike lee at the time uh a few years before this he had made like he got game summer of sam these are movies that i was following and watching as i got up to this point with 25th hour and i think both of those movies also are 
kind of flawed and a little bit bold and are really bold in their choices, like a lot of Spike Lee movies. And it has a similar sort of like grainy, uh, gritty aesthetic to it. I think all the movies kind of feel similar stylistically. But 25th Hour always felt like, oh, this is a really interesting contained idea. And I'll be honest, at the time, I thought it was just fascinating that he made a movie with a white character and mostly white characters, sort of uh, the trio of leads in this movie is Edward Norton, Barry Pepper, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, which when he showed up in this movie, rewatching it, I, I had almost forgot that he was in it. And right. my heart always sinks now when I see him because yeah. he's just oh, he's so great. Um, and uh, he, he's an actor that's missed. So I, I thought it was really fascinating that he had made a movie um, you know, that focused not entirely on uh, because this movie has a ton of traditional Spike Lee sort of, you know, racial, social vitriol and complications to it. But at its heart, it's about white people. And at the time, I thought that was fascinating. But now, uh, along with a lot of critics uh, growing like affection for the film, it seems to has, have aged really well because it's one of the first movies that really like became a document for post 9-11 New York. Mm hmm. Uh, I, I just, I just appreciate it much more now, but at the time I certainly thought it was good. And I remember people thinking it was good. So it's an interesting hold up, uh, I guess, because I don't think there's much to uh, defend about it or fight back. Um, I, I guess more than anything before I hand it off to you is I was just pleased to see that for me, it does really still hold up. Like it's, it's ideas feel even stronger and it's like even all the best Spike Lee movies, it is not subtle, but it's so great in how unsubtle right. it is, you know, like, yeah. uh, so I really appreciate a lot of that. There's more to, I think to, to appreciate, but, um, that's kind of where I was at from the beginning. Yeah. I think that, um, after like on the heels of he got game and, uh, summer of Sam, which were like back to back. Cause he was like, he was so constant from like, from his early career. He kind of always has been like making a movie, <laughs> if not every year, every two years. And so like he got game in summer of Sam back to back, I think it was 98, 99. Um, like those, I think like those, like he got game is certainly one of the movies that I'm like, look, he's messy at times. Like he's <laughs> splashy yes. and like impulsive. And like we've said before, didactic, but even at his kind of like, messiest he's still an insanely entertaining filmmaker yes and like uh so getting to a movie like uh the 25th hour where there there's like there's such a sense of like poise and like i don't know he's always a sophisticated incredibly sophisticated filmmaker but there was like a sense of polish to the movie yeah and like dealing similarly uh with in Vox Lux, like having this framework of the city kind of living in this, uh, in the wake of this unbelievable devastation mm -hmm. and how that doesn't necessarily, that's not the plot of the film, right. but it can't help, but like affect and permeate every aspect of it. And so this, this melodrama of like this, this guy, as he's like dealing with like you, I don't know. Like I really genuinely felt his dread of yeah. going to jail and like that, that sense of like that, that inching cl ever closer to this thing. That's like waiting for him. I was just like, yeah, fuck seven years in jail. Oh my God. That sounds like, that sounds so horrific. And like the performances this time, like this, what I noticed this time more was that, cause I liked it when I saw it in the theater, when it came out in 2002 mm -hmm. and I like, I've always been a fan of Spike Lee saw the man last night. In fact, uh, in person, what a treat. Yeah. Um, but like always been. And so even at his messiest, I've always like loved his films. And so this was just sort of like, I'm up for anything. I'm up for whatever spike does and being just like kind of thrilled by how at the level of sort of like, polish and depth of the movie but this time i i really actually was emotionally affected by a lot of the things in it like you mentioned mm -hmm. philip seymour hoffman like one of his scenes where he's given like you know monty played by ed norton has to give up his dog and uh yeah. he gives him to philip seymour hoffman and, and it's like a a pretty standard scene like it's one that you would expect to happen uh but it like seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, you know, 
beautifully execute the sense of like, like he's honored to take the dog and there's some, there's something kind of wounded about him as a character and him taking the dog. It's just like, it you know made me tear up and like, <laughs> there were just things that were probably heavy handed initially when I saw the movie that actually wound up working like for me, like this time around. Mm-hmm. And there's like, there is, it's, it's based on a book. And so like, there is something incredibly novelistic about the movie and how it like takes these sort of long scenes and these chapters while still maintaining this like gritty pulse that like drives the movie. Yeah. And like, there's, there is something kind of nicely investigative similar to Vox Lux about having like, you know, this, this pulse that's pushing everything forward while still taking these long scenes that investigate these characters at this moment, you know, where they're really trying to like deal with something impending and horrific. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's stuff in it that like, it does remind me of messy Spike Lee stuff, you know, yeah. like there's, there's scenes where it's just like, eh, all right. Like there's, you know, like a, a scene with stockbrokers that just seems kind of like <laughs> he's seen enough stockbroker movies that like this feels like it's it's his rendition of it. And it doesn't feel like it's in line with the musicality of his best work. But mm-hmm. like it's just sort of like that's ah, two assholes talking to each other about money. So uh, that's fine. We'll just let right. it play out. It's not my favorite song on the album, but it's okay. We'll just, <laughs> it's like he leans into out. certain cliches in, in those moments or character types, right? Like, yeah, the Barry Pepper has to represent a certain New Yorker. Right. And, yeah. and they even have the fuck off montage that I think has become kind of infamous or famous, depending on how you look at it now. But I think it's really powerful of like it it gets to that. It's like he's reducing everybody to their their surface level, their culture, who they're from. And uh, in a way, it's weird to see the movie do that sometimes. Yeah. And I think the the fuck off rant and like montage that you're talking about, I I think it is so iconic at this point. Yeah. Um, Because one, it, it distills something that though I've never lived in New York, it's something that I've always like noticed about New York. Whereas like it's, it's true diversity and true like blending of cultures and like New York has such a like gruff intensity to it. And there's the, you know, that famous like saying about New York, whereas like in LA, when people say hello, they mean fuck you in New York. When they say fuck you, they mean hello. So he's like talking about, he's running through the list of everybody in New York and fuck them, fuck these people, fuck these people. And then, like, eventually the monologue turns on itself and it's his reflection saying, no, fuck you. And so they're like, it's a weird celebration of everybody in this melting pot of a sort of overwhelming city. And like, it's it's an homage to a city Uh, like it's a Valentine to these differences that's like delivered in a middle finger, which which becomes like the perfect testament to New York and its energy and its gruffness Mm -hmm. in a time when like you know new york needed it like we loved we we you know that when it was wounded the way it was in such a profoundly devastating way on september 11th like people really like rushed to like love that city you know and like and spike lee is a fucking new yorker through and through he's made you know if not one of the best movies of all time he certainly made one of the some of the best new york movies of all time and uh yeah it was just like an an interesting testament to to the city to life in the city and you know just like taking these these moments of trauma and using them as a way to investigate life as it's being lived right here and now in 2002 mind you yeah (laughs) but yet the movie still feels so like it still works in that way today and and all those things that uh, aren't subtle or didactic can like still speak to right now, which is uh, something I found really powerful with the movie. And um, it's, it's worth noting that the, the book it's based on. And then the screenwriter is the same person, uh, same writer, David Benioff, who has since he's one of the showrunners of game of Thrones. I, I'm pretty sure that's a show you, you don't watch still Joe, yeah. but uh, yeah, he, he, this guy has had a completely different career trajectory. Um, but I, as I understand his book, and then he adapted himself uh, for the movie. The book doesn't have any of the 9-11 stuff. So that was something that was sort of, you know, 
a lesser way to put it would be like it was tacked on as they were making it because things had changed as they were making the film. But it's, it is amazing how much of that stuff is able to be threaded through the movie, even unsubtly, as we'd pointed out. Like, there's a very long scene at Barry Pepper's apartment where he's talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman. They're having a beer before they go out. And the camera just leans forward and extremely, like, um, atonal kind of music comes up where, like, these voices are this choir. And it's, again, it's like, ah, Spike can do that sometimes, like... Um, he'll he'll have music that doesn't seem to fit with what you're looking at, or it's like so over dramatic it can make. I've seen people, you know, sometimes you laugh at it, but I I like really appreciated that it could just hang on this image of uh, it was just what was left of you know it was the work being done on the two towers, what was left, all the rubble, everything in Ground Zero being worked on, and mm-hmm. to frame that scene there, it has nothing to do with what the two characters are talking about, but the fact that that and all these other things could allude to the way the city is feeling and then ma- uh, match that to what that character is going through a character mind, you know, like Ed Norton's character where, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that movies can give you empathy and sympathy for a character like that. I was moved by several scenes in the end as well, um, where I was teared up when his dad played by Brian Cox comes to pick him up to bring him to prison. It's like the time has come and he, Ed Norton just has this breakdown and he's, he's just like really moved me in that scene. But we've had, you know, a lot of moments with this character where it's like, for one, you know, he is a drug dealer. He is guilty of what he was, you know, uh, going to jail for. He has no doubt caused misery in some people's lives. Um, he doesn't seem to be a violent criminal, so that makes it maybe a little bit easier, but he also, um, you know, has a relationship with Rosario Dawson and there's a flashback where she's still in high school and he's hitting on her. And, you know, he asks her if she's 18 and says all these things. It's like stuff that is like, oh boy, like this guy is a little bit scumbaggy, but yet the movie has empathy for him. And I think there's like, I think that's a beautiful thing to even find that in a character like this that would often either be portrayed or that you might view in real life as a piece of shit. I think that'd be really easy to say something like that. And uh, I was like, uh, I loved the complexity of that, of being moved by just this guy's, his, his, his problem, something that he, you know, he put himself in this position by decisions he made. But like, there are these forces at work too, that, that, that put him there and you, you, you feel for him because you see his story. I thought, I just think that's a really, uh, a really beautiful thing that 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 happens in the film. Uh, I would say another part that I really locked into with this with this view viewing was uh, the way the movie portrays male relationships. Uh, specifically, like there's like a hierarchical thing to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess what I'm getting at is Barry Pepper. Uh, these are three friends. It's Ed Norton, Barry Pepper, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and they're they're going to party in his last night before he goes to prison. But you get the sense that they've sort of drifted apart, you know, as as happens as they've gotten older and taken different paths. But Barry Pepper talks about Ed Norton very differently to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in the film because it seems like in this hierarchy, Barry Pepper is sort of. Uh, at least personally, he feels like he's better than Philip Seymour Hoffman. He thinks he's a better guy overall. There's mm-hmm. dialogue that sort of gets at this. Uh, but then when he, you know, part of it is he's drunk later on in the film, but he gets to talk to Ed Norton and he sings a very different tune. His attitude has changed as to what he hopes happens to Ed Norton and whether he's willing to help him. And I just think the movie's really fascinating about the way it portrays those kind of male friendships and it, the way that like, I think it, it. I think it's more common in men than women, but it's just like men will act differently to different friends than they do to other friends. And I think, just think the movie really distills that down and uses it to uh, create really compelling drama. And uh, I was really like locked into that this view, and I thought it was like extremely well done. Now it's all across the board. It's across genders. People treat each other different, and there's fucked up power dynamics. But it does you're, it you're especially probably right. right with men in this movie. It does. It gets at exactly. There's a, maybe it's more, I, I think you're right. Maybe it's more a certain maleness to it. The, the, like that there's a style or whatever. The movie just really gets at it. And, um, I, I found all that really fascinating, um, for sure. And it's a, it's a movie that I'm like really pleased to like, see how well it holds up. Uh, and also that, like, I, th- I think this is one of Spike's, you know, better movies. It's, it's, he'll he'll probably never make another masterpiece on the level of do the right thing. And that's not because he's not 
like capable of it. It's because that's like a once in a lifetime great film where everything seemed to come together in that one. And it is a masterpiece, but 25th hours is up there as one of his really, for me, one of his best films that I've seen. And uh, I was just really pleased. that it still felt that way. Yeah. I feel the same way. And as he said last night, after his screening of do the right thing, the good shit holds up. So just chill to the next episode. All right, man. Episode 193 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find all those episodes at theplaylist.net or the Playlist Podcast Network on your podcatcher of choice. You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Uh, there's probably other ways to find us online, but we don't really care about that. Just let us know how you're feeling. Uh, rate, review, subscribe uh, to the shows. That would be really helpful. We'd be very thankful. But, you know, I'm just thankful to get to talk with you, Joe. So uh, thanks for chatting movies with me today. Thanks, Eric.